Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 168 for the second half of November 2017. The misconceptions that I'm going to talk about today are a few common ones that I hear from time to time about an apparent intelligent design due to fine-tuning of our solar system. The claims in this episode come not from a religious background, which is more common for any source of claims dealing with an apparent fine-tuning of the universe, galaxy, solar system, or planet. The idea is commonly phrased along the lines of, if any of these things were slightly different, we couldn't exist, therefore, God did it. Replace God in this episode with aliens, and you kind of have the episode. I've heard these particular arguments before, sometimes even from people who don't really have an agenda and just don't know, so I thought that they'd make a good topic for the podcast. There are four total, and instead of playing four different clips, I'm going to play them all at once here, at the beginning, because that's how it was presented. The speaker is Whitley Strieber, a ufologist and fiction, and what he would claim, nonfiction writer. This is about two minutes, 40 seconds long. What you see is this. The sun is a type of star known as a yellow dwarf. Most yellow dwarfs have sterile planetary systems because they explode out ferocious waves of gamma rays every few hundred thousand years. We know this because we see them doing it in, 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 out in, in the galaxy. Now, ours does not. We know it doesn't. Because we wouldn't be here if it did. It is strikingly benign compared to most of its sisters or brothers, depending on how you look at it. Again, Earth is just in the exactly exact center of the narrow 50,000 mile deep habitable zone around this star. Third, the moon, which emerged out of a huge impact. You know what the crater on Earth, that Earth was left behind on Earth, that is uh, by the moon? It's called the Pacific Ocean. That was a big impact. Without the moon to slow the rotational winds of Earth, by, because it's at the perfect distance and is the perfect size, we would not be here. There would be nothing on the earth more than lichens and things because the winds naturally generated by the rotation of the planet would be too strong. The moon acts as a kind of break. If the gas giants out beyond uh, Mars weren't here, neither would we because we would have long since been destroyed by asteroids coming in from deep space. Uh, and the moon is there sweeping up the ones that most of the ones that do get through with the result that earth is hit far less frequently by bolides and large objects than any other planet that we know of in the solar system. So it's like a Goldilocks planet in a perfect place. And I just wonder, and that gets me now to this idea, the basic idea of the book, which is so enthralling, it's 
a little bit like the ancient aliens, but it's much more complex than that and deeper than that, folks. And we're going to get into that. That was a long quote, and it's surprisingly coherent as far as most clips go on this show that I tend to play for you. So let's get right to the claims. The first claim is that the sun is a yellow dwarf type star, and it's a weird yellow dwarf type star because most yellow dwarf stars emit sterilizing bursts of gamma rays every few hundred thousand years, and we see this happening. This is wrong. The sun is classified as a yellow dwarf star, and that's about all that he said in this case that's true. This means that it's a yellowish color star, and it's small relative to how big stars can get, uh, usually thought to top off at around 100 solar masses, but more commonly it tops off at around 10 solar masses. It's really, really kind of hard these days in the current state of the universe to be able to get stars that are bigger than 10 solar masses. Uh, You kind of have to have special conditions where you have a lot of really dense gas and dust, and it's not really moving that much, so you're not splitting it apart into different stars, and so on and so forth. These stars were much more common in the early universe that it could get up to maybe 100 solar masses. But anyway, uh, stars, besides getting up to these days about 10 solar masses, they can get much smaller, the smallest for fusion being around 80 times the mass of Jupiter, which would equate to about 8% of the mass of the Sun. But our star is pretty run-of-the-mill so far as stars tend to go. But it doesn't emit gamma rays. Uh, Yeah, okay, it does emit gamma rays, but only as a normal byproduct of nuclear fusion, and the amount of light that it emits as gamma rays is minuscule compared to everything else, and it's constant, so that's definitely not what Whitley was talking about. Assuming that he's talking about gamma ray bursts that most astronomers talk about, there's no astronomer who thinks that sun-like stars emit them. Gamma ray bursts, or GRBs, are something that we're starting to get a better understanding on, but when I was in college just uh, a few short years ago, they were still a mystery. The idea is that gamma ray detectors would detect them, but by the time we could swing a visible light or other kind of light telescope in that direction, there'd be nothing to see. So we had no idea what these things actually were. So when I was in college, dedicated programs were just starting to come online, including a space telescope dedicated to this to try to sync up these kinds of observations in order to understand them. Gamma ray bursts tend themselves to be very diverse, suggesting a couple different causes. They can last anywhere from just about 10 milliseconds up to several hours, giving you an idea of why it took dedicated programs to really sync up observations from multiple kinds of telescopes. It's really hard to swing a telescope around in a few milliseconds. These are extremely energetic explosions, and they are often in very distant galaxies billions of light years away, meaning that they're even more energetic since we can actually see them here. Perhaps most importantly in this episode, the energy released in a typical GRB is as much energy in a few seconds as our sun will release in its entire 10 billion year lifetime. So sun-like stars can't be the source of gamma ray bursts. Nowadays, we do know that gamma ray bursts are caused by a few main things because of these dedicated programs that have existed since the few short years that I was in college. First is the long gamma ray bursts, which we think are caused by massive supernova of really, really massive stars, at least 40 times the mass of the sun. These are events called collapsars, or hypernova. Uh, Sometimes astronomers actually do get creative in their naming schemes. 
These collapse into black holes, and they must also be rotating very quickly in order for uh, the situation to exist where we would get a gamma ray burst. They also have to have low metallicity, meaning any element heavier than helium has to be in really small amounts. Otherwise, the jets that we think cause the gamma ray bursts from these events wouldn't be able to actually get through the material. That's why they're rare. There's more disagreement in the astrophysics community about the cause of short gamma-ray bursts, but the favored model is the merger of two neutron stars or a neutron star and a black hole. Another idea is magnetar giant flares. A magnetar is a type of neutron star with an extremely strong magnetic field, and neutron stars already have strong magnetic fields by default. These neutron stars could, in theory, emit incredibly strong outbursts of gamma rays, and there are observations that we've actually made of magnetars that have flared up with a gamma ray burst counterpart, so we think that this is one of the main causes of these short gamma ray bursts. So moving on, the second claim is that Earth is in the exact center of the habitable zone, which is only 50,000 miles wide. This is wrong. A star's habitable zone is based on a huge number of factors, but the basic idea is that this is the zone where life as we know it could survive, and so it's defined at a very, very basic level of where the water molecule can exist as a liquid. This varies based on atmosphere, and there are other issues too, but that's the basic criterion that we can use for now. And if you're interested in more on habitable zones, email info at trcpodcast.com, because we discussed me coming on a few years ago to talk about the concept, but that hasn't happened yet. In our own solar system, the habitable zone is generally agreed to be somewhere from about Venus distance from the Sun almost out to Mars perihelion. Uh, Mars perihelion, or perihelion of any object in the solar system is the closest distance that object gets to the sun. Put in numbers, that's roughly about three quarters or 0.75 AU to about 1.5 AU. In AU, astronomical unit, that's the distance between the earth and the sun. So right away we can see we are not in the middle of 0.75 to 1.5. We're closer to the inner edge. If you want perhaps more intuitive numbers, so far as gigantic numbers can be intuitive, uh, 1 AU is about 93 million miles, or about 150 million kilometers. This means that the width of the habitable zone is somewhere around 75% of an AU, or about 70 million miles, or 110 million kilometers wide. Uh, That's a little bit bigger than 50,000. But... You don't have to believe me on this. Uh, Let's say you want a more conservative criterion for, or set of criteria, for what a habitable zone is going to be. Okay, fine. We know that Whitley is wrong in his 5,000-mile number because in the course of a normal year, the orbit itself takes it from about 147.1 million to 152.1 million kilometers from the sun, or 91.4 to 94.5 million miles. Again, every year. So that's a width of about 5 million kilometers or 3.1 million miles, almost 100 times bigger than Whitley claimed. And we don't freeze and burn during that time. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. The next claim has to do with the moon, but I'm going to split that into two different ones. First up is FAST, its lunar origin. I discussed the origin of the moon in detail in episodes 53, 89, and 105, so I'm not going to do that here. 
Suffice it to say for this episode, first, the fission idea for the moon, the idea that the Earth and the moon split from the same body, is not favored by really any scientist today. Second, even if it were in favor, the idea that it came from the Pacific Ocean is one that hasn't been used in a century because we know about plate tectonics, which means that the Pacific Ocean is only a few hundred million years old. The moon, in contrast, is closer to about 4.6 billion. The second part of the lunar claims was that the moon helps promote life on Earth, or it helps it at least to survive. If Whitley had just stopped there, I would have agreed with him 100%. Tides help mix waters, which likely helped circulate nutrients for the first life, uh, and mix other stuff that's necessary for life, and the moon is a large gravitational body in orbit of our planet that keeps our obliquity pretty stable. Obliquity, for those who don't know, is the tilt of our planet's rotation axis relative to its orbit around the sun. That's the 23.5 degree number that most people know if they don't necessarily know what it's called. Because of the moon, though, Earth's obliquity only varies by around plus or minus one degree over long timescales. That's a pretty stable tilt, and that means that we get regular seasons without gigantic extremes at any given location on the planet. Contrast that with Mars, which has no large satellites, and Mars' obliquity goes anywhere from zero degrees, uh, basically the rotation axis is perpendicular to the orbit around the sun, so there are pretty much no seasons caused by tilt, to almost 90 degrees. That's where the North Pole, and then alternatively the South Pole, depending on what time of year, is aimed directly at the Sun. This obliquity change happens over million-year timescales. Mars' current obliquity is actually rather low for the average, about 25 degrees. But even though I did, Whitley did not go there. Instead, he claimed that it calms our winds. That's wrong. Earth's moon really has no bearing at all on Earth's winds. Uh, How could it? What would be the mechanism? The only methods that I can think about are uh, one being minor and one being indirect. The minor method is tides again, where tidal forces are observed acting on the atmosphere, but it's a remarkably minor effect. The indirect method is again tides, since tides have an effect on ocean currents, and ocean currents can influence the winds. But it is very incorrect to say that the moon helps stabilize our wind patterns so that we don't have gigantic life-killing winds. The final claim for this episode could, again, broadly be broken into two, but I'm not going to for this discussion because it's more about impacts on our planet than separate claims about different effects. Whitley started this claim by saying that the gas giants in our solar system helped to clear out the leftover material from the planet formation, and that helped prevent it from hitting Earth. Uh, I'm actually sort of rephrasing what he said, being slightly generous perhaps, but that's what we actually do think happened. The gas giants, especially Jupiter, did play a large role, we think, in clearing out material left over from solar system formation such that it was either sent directly to the sun, impacted on the gas giant planets, or ejected entirely from the solar system, instead of potentially hitting Earth. That's a good thing. But that's also really common. Based on our observations of now the thousands of known exoplanets, we know that giant planets are pretty common. Hence, this could occur in pretty much any solar system that we've seen. The next part of the claim was that the moon sweeps up impactors that would hit Earth. The moon 
does have an effect on influencing impactors, but it's generally thought to be minor. After all, the mass of Earth is, roughly speaking, about 100 times the mass of the moon. Its surface area is about 16 times the mass of the moon. We're going to be hit a lot more than the moon. We're also not the least hit object in the solar system. It's true that we have few impact craters relative to other bodies, but that's because we have active geologic processes that remove them. The only known solid object in the solar system that has fewer craters on it than Earth is Jupiter's moon Io, whose surface is constantly being recycled by active volcanism due to the tidal pull between Jupiter and its other large satellites. They basically act to stretch the core uh, of Io between themselves due to tidal forces stretching it like taffy and heating it up a lot. It's also possible that Titan has fewer craters than Earth. I haven't done my own crater mapping on Titan, so I'm using published numbers by other people, but based on the numbers that I've seen, there may be around 100 craters that Cassini was able to detect on Titan. Earth, in contrast, has about 170 known impact craters, but Earth also has six times the surface area as Titan. So per unit surface area, Earth has fewer craters than Titan. The reason for so few craters on Titan is its thick atmosphere, and it also has active erosion processes. So it's not true that Earth is the least hit object in the solar system. So now with those explained, those are the four main claims or sets of claims that Whitley made about fine-tuning of our planet or solar system, and every single one was 100% wrong, or at least partly wrong. He was wrong about our sun. It's a quiet star, and its kind of quiet star can't emit gamma-ray bursts because gamma-ray bursts would use up its entire energy output over its entire lifetime. He was wrong about the habitable zone. It's 100 times, at least 100 times, wider than he thought, and Earth's own orbit proves him wrong. He was wrong about the moon. While it does help life exist on Earth, it did not come from the Pacific Ocean, and it doesn't do much of anything to Earth's winds, at least not directly. And he was wrong about impacts on Earth. The claim about gas giants sweeping out stuff is correct, but it's not true that Earth has the fewest impacts of any body in the solar system, and it certainly doesn't experience the fewest impacts of any body in the solar system either. So with that in mind, this isn't meant to pick on Whitley Strieber per se. Whitley just happened to make the latest version of these claims that I've heard many, many times before, and he presented them in a remarkably cogent fashion for his industry. This is also a case that demonstrates well the two parts of investigating any claim. First, you have to make sure the claim is actually real. If it isn't, you can stop there. You don't even have to explain its implications because the claim itself may have no basis in fact. In this instance, with these examples, we can stop after step one without even going on to step two. I'm recording this uh, early, very soon after the last episode was recorded, due to a nine-day trip that's coming up. Uh, Actually, as I record this, I'll be leaving in three hours for the airport. So I'll be editing and posting it on the road, so my plan is to discuss any relevant feedback uh, that's going to have to wait at least until the next episode. Because it's been a while, I'll just repeat the boilerplate. Don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.com. 
sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, almost up to 900 likes. Me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's D R Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. P S E U D O A S T R O. So that wraps up this episode for the 168th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice that was not in that list. If you liked it, also tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life because, hey, let's face it, lots of us know people on the internet who we have never met and will never meet in real life. <laughs>